we're going to uh, instead mix in a series of shorter presentations uh, right here on, on some more technical topics. Uh, the intelligence community does occasionally complain about the problem of drinking from a fire hose, uh, you know, the enormous amounts of data they have to process. So with a series of very brief talks, we're hoping to recreate that experience for you, at the end of which you will rise like Keanu Reeves in the Matrix and say, I know Kung Fu. Um, and so the, the first informational deluge will come from a, a, a Cato alumnus who is uh, now uh, civil liberties policy analyst at the Niskanen Center, uh, named after actually Cato's own uh, late beloved German uh, Bill Niskanen. I'm uh, pleased to introduce uh, Ryan Hageman. Hello, everyone. Uh, sorry, let's start again. Hello, everyone. Uh, I wanted to thank Julian to start, as well as Cato for being such a gracious host and hosting this conference. I just wish that there were more libertarian and conservative leading organizations that were more focused on the tech and innovation policy space. So today I'm going to talk to you about encryption, but first I want to talk to you about trust. Trust is a necessary and key factor in contributing to the sustainability and growth of any human-centric ecosystem. And this is especially true for markets, for the economy. It's true in social settings as well, but given the title of my presentation today, I will be focusing mostly on the economic benefits that accrue from trust-building relationships surrounding encryption. Uh, so the question that we have been encountering over the past few decades is the internet, by its nature, is a network of millions of different computers, individual, and network systems. So how is it that we build trust in what would otherwise be a relatively trustless environment in which we are connecting with people we don't actually know and we aren't actually interfacing with face-to-face? -face? And my answer is through security protocols that are built on the impartiality of computer code. Uh, code does not make moral judgments. It is what it is, and it does what it does because it is neutral. Uh, so the result that we have as a result of encryption being incorporated into the internet is an internet where people can interact relatively freely with one another and conduct commercial transactions with high degrees of confidence and trust, which again is necessary in order to foment the sustainability and the growth of an economic marketplace like the internet. And to just give a brief overview of just how significant uh, this has been, uh, as of 2012, it's estimated that the internet accounted for approximately 5% of total US GDP, which at the time, total US GDP was approximately $14.5 trillion, which means the internet contributed essentially $700 billion to this, to this ecosystem. And over the next decade, the global value of goods and services is estimated to triple to over $85 trillion due to the proliferation of the internet and internet communication technologies, which will be important as we move more and more into an age where people are essentially living most of their lives online. Uh, why? Beautiful. Uh, so the Niskanen Center has a forthcoming paper that attempts to quantify the total benefits that have accrued to the internet ecosystem as a result of encryption protocols being used. And I will just tell you briefly, it's a massive undertaking. It's been very difficult, and we don't actually have a finalized number that I can actually give you here today that is suggestive of how much encryption has actually benefited uh, uh, people in online, uh, online life. Uh, however, I will go through briefly some of the metrics that we have been looking at. Uh, I will not be touching on consumer surplus. We are still sort of 
wheeling and dealing through the nitty gritty details of exactly how we're going to present that information and we're still going through, uh, we're still working through the assessment and the analysis of that. So we will go through the first four and just, just briefly, the reason that we chose these metrics is one, there's a wide availability of data in terms of both breadth and depth of the data available and we basically had to limit ourselves to a very small number of metrics given the size of the ecosystem that we're trying to examine here. So with that, let's move directly into the first metric. Online banking. Surveys indicate that customers generally report feeling far more secure on their own financial institutions' websites than they do on the internet in general, which should come as relatively no surprise to us given that the reason we bank with a particular banking institution is because we afford them a certain amount of trust. And we would expect that this translates over into the internet ecosystem as well. Uh, the negative perception surrounding mobile security, however, is partly how you, why we see, I don't think I have a pointer on here, but the, oh, that's not good. Um, the difference between online banking, which is the top uh, graph there, or the top line there, and mobile banking, which is the bottom line, the difference between the 61% and the 35% that we see right now is essentially what I'm going to refer to as a trust differential. There's fundamentally no difference between banking with your online inst banking institution, whether you're using a mobile device or whether you're using a set computer, or a larger computer, I should say. Um, however, because mobile technology has only begun to take off in recent years and people are only beginning to really adopt these devices uh, in, the, in, in the recent past, uh, we see that there's a clear difference in how people view uh, the security of mobile versus stationary banking, if, if, if you will. Um, and then another brief point on this metric. Uh, in 2001, clearinghouse interbank payment systems and Fedwire were processing approximately 350,000 electronic uh, transactions every day, totaling about one to two trillion dollars every day. As of 2010, the number of electronic payments being processed daily was 84.5 billion with a B, with a total value of approximately $40 trillion. That's every day, $40 trillion is basically zooming through, if you will pardon the expression, the tubes of the internet. So it's important for us to recognize that without strong encryption protocols, these types of uh, developments in this space simply are not tenable or possible, and people likely would not trust the systems that they are using. E-commerce has seen similarly explosive growth over the past uh, 20 years or so. In 1994, the total online uh, business transactions totaled about $100 million, which would barely register on this graph here. By 2013, uh, total e-commerce retail sales were over $250 billion. And in the first quarter of 2015 alone, uh, the total retail sales of e-commerce amounted to approximately $85 billion, which means we are now on the fast track to seeing a 2015 number closer to about $320 or $330 billion in terms of total transactions. Uh, also important to note that e-commerce shipments for U.S. manufacturing firms were about $3.3 trillion in 2013. That's 60% of the total number of manufacturing shipments that were sent in that year. ICT refers to information communication technologies. This is a graph that my research associate Josh Hampson and I threw together after assessing, uh, doing a deep dive into some Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers on the labor market for uh, security, uh, security employment in the online space. Um, 
the big takeaway here isn't actually shown in the graph, but rather it's the fact that ICT security rules are becoming increasingly more specialized as time goes on. I'll give you an example. In 2000, BLS had no what they referred to as occupational employment statistics, OES, classifications for information security analysts. By 2010, those information security analyst roles did exist, but they were basically baked in with web developers, network architects, and, and uh, basically anything that had to do with computers or, or uh, the information technology space. By 2014, information security analysts were, uh, were classified as their own separate OES classification. So it, so it goes to show that over time, over the last 25 years or so, uh, the U.S. Census Bureau anyways, or, or the Bureau of Labor and Statistics as well, has basically recognized that the resultant growth of this uh, nascent uh, security market for online security purposes has grown and become so uh, profound that they actually need to uh, reclassify people they were previously classifying as simply IT folk, for lack of a better expression. Um, another brief note on information communications technology, uh, employment and security. Uh, is the cybersecurity market. Global cybersecurity market back in 1997 was approximately $2 billion. And it wasn't until 1999, if I recall correctly, that the first $1 billion uh, breach was reported. So in 97, $2 billion is the global cybersecurity market. In 1999, it doubled to about $4.2 billion. In 2002, it almost doubled again to approximately $7.4 billion. And as of 2015, the global cybersecurity market stood at over $100 billion. So there is a clear demand for people with these types of uh, skill sets. And firms are likely responding to the fact that as more and more data flows online and as it becomes more and more uh, required, to protect that data as best we possibly can, that they are willing to shill out the money and they are willing to uh, basically engage with this marketplace. Uh, another brief note, uh, by 2020, the cybersecurity market on a global scale is expected to reach approximately $200 billion. And by 2019, the market for encryption software products alone is expected to reach approximately $5 billion. I don't want to spend too much time on the research and development investment numbers. Um, partly because this simply takes account of federal expenditures and not of private expenditures, which would, quite frankly, be much more valuable in an assessment like this uh, because the federal government basically breaks down R&D investment that involves uh, information, uh, computer, uh, technology, security, uh, just to the level of math, and I believe they call it computer science. So this doesn't take account simply of online security, it takes account of basically anything that has to do with math or computer science, uh, which is unfortunate because if we could get a more uh, myopic breakdown of the specific numbers we're looking for, this might be far more telling than it actually is. Uh, instead, I'll leave the graph with you and simply suggest that investments um, in federal spending for R&D in this space are likely uh, lagging behind those of the private sector and are likely simply chasing the market. It's just another telling sign that, uh, especially after the early 90s, when you start to see uh, an increased adoption of the commercialized internet, the fact that R&D spending in this space starts to skyrocket is telling of the importance that uh, human agents are placing on this space. 
Now this is sort of the point at which you're probably wondering, well, what do any of these metrics have to do with encryption? Well, all of them are highly suggestive of the value that individuals and corporations and governments are placing on encryption. Uh, I threw this to graph together with, again, my research associate who is helping to parse through the details of the paper so that we can basically see all of the metrics that we assessed aggregated together. And what we see is a clear upward tick, upward trend. Important to note, US e-commerce, this uh, purple line here, is assessed on the right-hand axis uh, because when we originally threw it together with a simple XY uh, axis scheme, the only thing that showed up was US e-commerce. And the reason for that is clear. We have over 5,000% increase from 1998 to 2013 in e-commerce, and no other single metric that we looked at had that level of growth. So in case anyone is wondering what the numbers on the right-hand side are for, they're specifically for e-commerce. Now, a 2005 economic study indicated that if given the option and no free encryption were available, a significant majority of internet users would nonetheless pay to minimize their risk, whether it was encryption or whether it was using some sort of other security or uh, insurance scheme. They opted for more security. Now, aside from that study, uh, I could not find any experimental economic uh, behavioral analysis that had been done that actually attempted to quantify the value that individuals place on privacy. Um, so if anyone has anything that would be valuable for that, please do let me know. Uh, to wrap it up briefly, uh, the internet is the lifeblood of the modern digital economy. And if you accept that statement, then it goes almost without saying that encryption protocols are the white blood cells that essentially keep the system free from infection. And there has been much talk about the need to undermine encryption, install security backdoors and vulnerabilities into these products on the Hill for fear of, quote unquote, going dark, per FBI Director James Comey. Um, but the reality is that if we introduce those types of backdoors into encryption protocols, you are going to see a significant uh, downtick in terms of the level of trust that individuals are willing to lend to online retailers like Amazon, eBay, and others, as well as their own uh, online financial uh, institution. Uh, so in short, the paper should be coming out in another two, three weeks or so. Uh, we still need to parse through some of the data and some of the conclusions, but basically it's looking like encryption is good and is one of the primary reasons that we have seen the explosive growth in internet communication technologies over the last quarter century. With that, I thank you. Thanks very much, Ryan. Uh, continuing the, uh, the uh, encryption theme, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, the uh, chief technologist at the Invaluable Center for Democracy and Technology, uh, 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 Joseph Lorenzo Hall. Nope, it's black. Uh, so I'm going to try and make up some time here and do a 10-minute talk in about five or six minutes. Um, once my slide starts, but uh, the title of the talk is Ciphertext Rots. Uh, nope. Sorry, I know it's a lot of encryption stuff. Uh, there you go. All right. So this is work that I'm doing with uh, Marshall Irwin of the Stanford Center for Inter Internet and Society. It's very preliminary. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, uh, just to get started real quick. Uh, so a lot of the discussion about cryptography and encryption has been around backdoors and exceptional access mechanisms for real-time communication and stored communications. Um, but increasingly, 
I'm, I'm gonna, you know, technologists who work in this area uh, are, are starting to realize that there's much more to the encryption debate in general. Um, that you know, it has historically been a, a, a marker, so to speak, that this communication is of intelligence intelligence relevance. Um, that's going to increasingly, if that was ever true, it's going to be increasingly less the case. Um, in terms of some of the authorities that the uh, intelligence community uses to collect information and, to, and, and under the, the constraints they have in terms of retaining that information, um, the, the, the basic thing that sort of shocked me as a technologist is that the retention periods for encrypted information, the, the terms that uh, um, FISA 702 and Executive Order 12333 use are uh, enciphered or reasonably believed to hold secret meaning. So encrypted or something steganographic, hiding things, but you know, in plain sight, that, that kind of stuff. Um, and there's no clear retention timeline under 702 or 12333. There is sort of a blanket uh, um, a limitation on classification in the declassification, declassification guidelines in 13526. But the point is, is that you know, if you can collect encrypt encrypted communication and keep it forever, that 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 is something that that technologists recognize that because of the the state of encryption and how encryption isn't sort of a, a, a it isn't a stable thing it's something that changes over time that's going to be increasingly a problematic um, and specifically because the last bullet here is that you know when when you're trying to target collection of information and you're trying to target the collection of information that is encrypted, you're gonna have very little surface area to do that on. So you may know that there's an IP address that's communicating with what looks like random data, maybe it's encrypted, uh, but you may not have the ability to look within that encrypted envelope, that's what encryption's for, to better target the collection of the data underneath it. Um, and frankly, encryption is here to stay. A big part of my job is to try and encrypt everything we can get our hands on. Um, uh, we're seeing, you know, a remarkable uptick in encrypted communications, um, in encrypted devices, encrypted everything, even things that are doing pretty strange magical stuff in the cloud, which is around a set of technologies called homomorphic encryption, where you, your service provider can do things, compute for you, as they do now, your Dropboxes, your Googles, whatever, but they can do it without ever having the keys and without ever needing to decrypt the information. So there's a couple of startups like um, Cryptnostic that do cloud search based on encrypted information where you never have to give them the keys. Um, and it's only going to increase. The technical standard setting organizations of the world, the IETF, the W3C, have all said we will approve no more unencrypted protocols. There's very, very limited cases in which those are useful. Uh, and we see large content providers, most of the, the, the large journalism properties are moving to uh, only encrypted formats. The US uh, civilian government, the .gov um, domain, the .gov part, uh, the civilian part of the .gov domain will be fully encrypted by the end of next year and there'll be no way to access those services in an unencrypted manner. The advertising industry, which has been somewhat of a rate limiter for encryption, is starting to get religion, so to speak, and encrypt some of their stuff. They recognize that if you can't serve encrypted content, you may be left out of this entire thing. And browsers are going to start what, what we call deprecating HTTP. That may sound like a bunch of words, but essentially marking unencrypted content as insecure. Firefox right now will mark any password entry um, in an unencrypted page as being insecure and alert you as a user to that. Um, Cyphertext doesn't age. Cyphertext is what we call encrypted information. It's just shorter. It's kind of cool. Uh, Cyphertext does not age gracefully. And, and what we mean by that is there's a whole bunch of, of things that, that work against keeping um, things encrypted, encrypted forever. Um, so just cryptanalysis, both theoretical types of attacks as well as being able to crunch numbers better. Those, those things both uh, tend to, in time, lower the, the protection that a given encryption suite would provide. 
We have uh, protocol flaws, so the, the wonderful ways we think of how encryption works, sometimes we don't exactly do that right, and there could be flaws in there, and there could be implementation flaws, how we take those protocols and instantiate them into actual computer programs. And then finally, the big bad uh, bugaboo out there is quantum computing. In about 30 to 40 years, we expect some of the hard math problems that encryption is based on to not be as hard as they used to be and to be cheaply um, exploitable against uh, lots of different types of ciphertext. All this stuff means that if you're keeping stuff indefinitely, eventually it's going to be unencrypted and you need, you need to think about uh, what, what's going to happen there. We need to, so that could be one suggestion area for transparency is what exactly do you do you do with encrypted data? How do you target it? How do you um, uh, um, exploit it later? Um, there's a, and this is the last slide I'll say, that there's a fundamental dilemma in collecting encrypted information. It's sort of both innocuous and fundamentally problematic at the same time. It's uh, innocuous in the first sense in that you, you may not have enough information to do targeting of collection. You may, it may just be um, exceedingly hard to figure out what in this encrypted bunch of stuff you want to keep. So you may have to necessarily have it all. Um, because it's encrypted, it may not actually be sensitive, because you may not be able to make sense of it. It may, like all the stuff we do in, in, in encrypted fashion, like finance, it may actually be uh, protected for now. Um, it's, it's problematic in two senses. One, in that because the flip side of not being able to target is you may not even be able to tell whether or not something you're collecting is relevant at all. Um, you may collect a whole bunch of stuff that is not relevant, but then some later date, uh, if when it's eventually decrypted, then it can be extremely sensitive. The things that people do in the veil of encryption are exactly what Ryan was talking about in terms of this trust relationship that you have. Uh, and this can be bulk content collection. So like 215 was bulk collection, but of metadata, and 702 was targeted collection, but content, this is sort of the worst of both those things. Um, here is where I was gonna show you a slide of a bunch of lovely suggestions we had. I'm not going to show you that slide just because I think it's a little, we're still sort of figuring out exactly what to think about here. So for example, and I'll shut up in about 20 seconds, um, if all of a sudden some big breakthrough means that much of your encrypted data you're storing is no longer encrypted, um, wh what's the retention clock? Is it five years from the moment it becomes sort of knowable or comprehensible? Is it shorter because you know it's not sort of as immediately sensitive as the other stuff was? It's not sort of immediately relevant to ongoing investigations? Um, do you have to have waivers? Hey, this stuff was useful for learning how to crap other, crack other kinds of, uh, of encrypted information. Um, all that stuff is things that I think we need to spend more time thinking about. Anyway, I'll stop. Thanks. Thanks very much. And then the final of our uh, brief talks before we move to a break. Uh, I, uh, I know uh, as someone who's read uh, legal briefs, uh, both from the FISA court and from government lawyers, uh, discussing the legal authority behind uh, the various programs that were initiated in the aftermath of 9-11, um, it becomes increasingly clear as you look at these that sometimes the lawyers drafting these documents um, are not familiar with the differences between traditional wireline telephone systems and the packet-switched architecture of the internet, um, which you might think is not that important, but it turns out that those differences are actually extraordinarily legally significant. And so you have not just potential legal errors being made, but important legal questions that are not even recognized as questions requiring an answer because the unique architecture of the internet is not really factored in when analyzing how traditional legal
legal authorities apply uh, to that network and whether, for instance, the traditional distinction between the content of a communication and the metadata about the communication are valid. So to discuss, uh, to discuss that, I have two uh, excellently uh, informed both, both in uh, legal and uh, uh, technological senses, uh, folks. We have Steve Bellavan from the Computer Science Department at Columbia University and uh, Stephanie Pell, who's a professor and cyber ethics fellow at West Point. Thanks for having us. Steve and I are going to present a technologically driven thesis about how and why the content-non-content -content distinction and the third-party doctrine are no longer viable, workable rules in the context of an IP-mediated communications environment. This thesis is developed in an almost finished new draft paper co-authored with our colleagues Matt Glaze and Susan Landau. I'm going to introduce a few of the legal arguments and Steve will illustrate certain elements of our thesis through various IP-based communications examples. So for more than 40 years, constitutional and statutory frameworks governing surveillance of wire and electronic communications have recognized a distinction between content and the non-content components of those communications. A second but related and distinct tenet of electronic communications surveillance law dictates that when the non-content components of communications are shared with third parties, they lose Fourth Amendment protections. Many of you have heard of this controversial rule called the Third Party Doctrine, articulated in US v. Miller and Smith v. Maryland. The stability of these legal regimes and the distinctions they facilitated at the time of the Supreme Court case Smith v. Maryland, was, which was decided in 1979, was enabled by the relative stability of distinct types of data in the traditional telephone network. The traditional public switch telephone network, or PSTN, physically separated the content, the voice communications, from the metadata, the dialing and routing information. The physical separation of content from metadata sustained a legal framework, both statutory and constitutional, that was construed to distinguish content from metadata with ease and certainty in the context of the technology of that day. But that day has come and gone. I certainly don't need to tell all of you that the technology of 1979 is not the technology of 2015. So what happens to these legal frameworks when they co confront the layered, packet-switched, complex networks, network of networks we know and love as the internet? The technology of today does not facilitate a simple separation of content from non-content, nor does it easily allow for the identification of third-party data for purposes of applying the third party doctrine. Why is this, you may ask? Well, the internet's open and dynamic architecture creates a communication environment 
where any given individual unit of data may change its status from content to non-content and vice versa as it progresses across the internet's layered structures from sender to recipient. And to complicate matters even further, whether a particular unit of data may be considered content or non-content depends upon where in the network you ask the question. Why is that the case? Well, I need to introduce a concept I'm going to call architectural content. But before I do that, I'd like all of us to consider, consider the definition of content found currently in the Wiretap Act. As you can see, content here is based on semantic meaning. Let's call this concept communicative content. But remember the old Supreme Court case of Ex Parte Jackson, which was decided back in 1878? In that case, the court gave Fourth Amendment protections to the interior matter of a package. And it did not extend those Fourth Amendment protections to the outward form and weight of the package. Here, the structure of a package or an envelope allows for a clear rule. The inside of the package has Fourth Amendment protections, and the outside addressing or other information that is exposed to the public does not. So what does this kind of structural analysis tell us about the content, non-content distinction on the internet? And here is where we come to our definition of architectural content, content, which we use to denote the unexamined transportation of a unit of data between two given points in a network. Here, content is the product of how the network was designed to function as a transport system for application data. That is, how the layers of the internet were intended to communicate with each other. Many of you may be familiar with the term end-to-end -end communication. Architectural content, unlike communicative content, is based on structure, not semantic meaning. Now, it is possible for any particular unit of data to be both communicative and architectural content simultaneously, or be one or the other. And it is these dual but not mutually exclusive terms that are critical concepts for understanding how the lingual distinctions between content and metadata have become untenable in an IP-based communications environment. I'm now going to turn this over to Steve and have him demonstrate the concept of architectural content, apply it to IP-based communications, which will in turn show us one of the reasons why the content-non-content distinction is collapsing in an IP-based communication environment. And this collapse also has an effect on the third-party doctrine. But I will note that we are not trying to uh, take on the third-party doctrine in full force, but there are significant, uh, significant effects on its application in an IP-based communications environment. 
Thanks. So I, I will apologize. I'm going to go quickly over some of this material, and I'm going to oversimplify. It is fairly, some of this is fairly complex technical material. But I first want to show you what is called technically the network stack. And we show conventionally seven layers of which actually only five really exist. But what's really important here is what is seen and used by the network elements, particularly the routers run by ISPs, and what is going directly from a sender to a recipient. So as you can see in this diagram, the network layer is actually used by every router along the path and information in the network layer header is in effect given to ISPs according to the, the same way that phone numbers you dial are given to the phone company according to Smith versus Maryland. The higher layers, the uh, transport layer and the application layer are between the sender and the recipient and they're not in fact processed by ISPs, they're not given to an ISP any more than your speech is given to a phone company. Now, some of these layers actually have sub-layers that have structure within them, particularly the application layer does. And the application layer is where the interesting stuff takes place from the user perspective. I'm going to first look at email. Uh, and this will start with a very simple example of where a court got it wrong. Looking at a uh, pen register order, for email, the court concluded that the email headers we all know and love, like from and to and so on, are clearly, the court said, uh, certainly obtainable by a pen register order. Because after all, these are the from and to addresses which, which seem to be metadata, just like the numbers you dial or the numbers that dial you. Seems perfectly clear to a court. And it's not that simple when you look at it over the wire. And here is a very lightly edited uh, transcript of an actual email message I sent. And what's important to note here, it uses a, what's called SMTP, the Simple Mail Transfer Protocol. This is the way mail is actually sent on the internet. You see two different from lines and two different to lines, and they don't agree. The outer layer is what's being given to a mail server by a user's mail program. The inner part is architectural content that the mail server is not actually dealing with. It's merely carrying from the sender to the recipient. So the first line, the mail from line, gives my actual email address as far as the provider is concerned. But what's in the body of the message, in this case, is completely different. I'm claiming to be the president. And if you think about it, when you configure your mail or Outlook, mail.app uh, on Macs, what have you, you specify what goes in the from line, but the account information is very different. And this actually shows in the actual over-the-wire protocol. So SMTP, the envelope dialog, and that's actually the word used in the technical specifications, have one form of information, and that is probably metadata, according to Smith. But the message itself is pure content, again, according to the distinction drawn by the court in Smith. And the two sets don't, of information don't have to agree. The most obvious example is the BCC line, which we all use. And by intent, that does not show in the content of the message, but does show in the metadata. On the other hand, since the two need not agree, the two can be quite revel the content can be quite revelatory. Think of a physical envelope which might say Miss Lorena Hickok versus the inside 
salutation, Hick, my dearest. And why did I pick those two examples? This is an actual letter sent by Eleanor Roosevelt to our close friend, Lorena Hickok. The actual body of the message says, starts, Hick, my dearest. This very intimate salutation has been used by some historians to argue that the two of them had a romantic relationship. One could be quite certain, however, that the outside of the envelope did not say Hick, my dearest, but said Miss Lorena Hickok. This was about 1933. So the insight can be considerably more revelatory. The two are not equivalent, and only the first, the envelope information sent to the mail server, is metadata within the meaning of Smith. But that's a fairly simple thing. The courts could correct that easily, but... In fact, the internet is more complex. What is a mail server? Well, when you send email, say, from your laptop to someone else's laptop or phone, it goes from your laptop to an outbound mail server, across the internet to an inbound mail server, and then to the recipient's computer. But what's a mail server? Who runs a mail server? On the phone company, the phone company is the phone company. If you make a call, you're using its facilities, giving it the phone number. Mail servers are not a privileged part of the internet. Your employer probably runs one. Your ISP runs one. Google and Microsoft and Yahoo run very popular third-party mail servers. But I can run a mail server. In fact, I do run a mail server. Matt Blaze, one of the other authors on this draft paper, also runs a mail server. And when Matt sends email to me, there is no third party involved. He sends mail from his laptop to his outbound mail server to my inbound mail server to my laptop or phone. There is no third party doctrine applied here because there is no third party. It's his computer talking to mine. You don't have that in the phone network. But you know, on my particular mail, one of my particular mail servers, Stephanie and Susan Landau, the fourth author, also have accounts. So that same message from Matt to my mail server might or might not involve the third party doctrine. You can't tell until after you intercept it. But you can't intercept it until you know that you can intercept it legally, which may or may not require a search warrant as opposed to a third party uh, order. Let's also talk about the question of what people actually know. And I'm not, I'm going to use location in mapping programs here. I'm not going to go into the whole general question of whether or not location information is third party information, but rather what people know. And here are two screenshots from my own iPhone a few days ago on Columbia campus. In the first one, I'm online to AT&T and Wi-Fi, as you can see in the upper left. And then I went into airplane mode where my phone is not transmitting anything. In a typical mapping application, you are sending a mapping server information on where you are so it can tell you what segments of the map to use. And as you move around, it may or may not download new mapping information to your phone. And therefore, it may or may not need to make this transmission. Even when I'm online, the phone has got certain information in the map cached and doesn't have to go out to get new map segments. When does it go out? I have no idea. I have personally successfully used my phone in offline mode when I'm traveling abroad. I download uh, map segments that of areas I think I'm going to need in my hotel when I'm on Wi-Fi and avoid the uh, 
very expensive international roaming charges. So sometimes I use my phone completely offline, the mapping program offline, and sometimes I am giving a third party, Google in this case, information about where I am. How do I know? About a quarter of the court's opinion in Smith discussed why people know or should know that phone companies can record phone numbers you dial. Here I have no way of knowing. And by the way, even if I'm not downloading a map, it turns out that determining location on a phone generally means the phone is sending the map server Wi-Fi information. It's a very accurate means of geolocation without a GPS signal. How many people even know this? But the point is that even if I'm not downloading a map segment, I'm still sending location information to a third party. But I also have a uh, standalone handheld GPS that I use when hiking, and that never transmits anything. It's the same functionality to me, but I can get three very different kinds of behavior. Always send location, sometimes send location, never send location. I cannot tell the difference. How can I knowingly share something when I don't know what the application is actually doing? Application behavior is very complex and getting more so. We can also look at voice over IP. And uh, the FCC's own figures say that in about three years, the old traditional phone network of the type that was the only thing that existed in 1979 when Smith was handed down will, for all practical purposes, no longer exist. Phone calls will be mobile, we voice over IP, over your cable network, some other technology, we don't know. It turns out that it matters on the internet. So ex parte Jackson, as Stephanie pointed out, noted that the outward form and weight of a letter or package was not protected. Well, I don't know what a packet weighs, but I do know how long it is. That would seem to be its outward form, how long the packet is. Group of researchers at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill showed a few years ago that just based on the distribution and pattern of packet sizes for voice encrypted voice over IP communication, they could actually recover some of the plain text. Why? It's a complicated. Voice is compressed. How well you can compress voice depends on the actual sounds you're using. Different words compress differently and have certain characteristic sizes. And this lets them recover actually the language being spoken, different languages and different patterns of sounds, and now some of the content. So the metadata, the outward form, is now revealing content. I can, the court's opinion is Smith relied on the fact that a pen register could not pick up any content. And now a technologically advanced way of looking at the metadata is revealing content. There are a lot of other and considerably more complex examples that we have. URLs, nice simple concept, turn out to be amazingly complex to analyze technically, though the legal import we're still discussing. And even apart from that, today's internet is far more complex than the original internet architecture of, uh, say, 30 years ago. We can argue about originalism on the internet, too. The only difference is here a lot of the creators are still alive and can say, that isn't what I meant. 
some information, like IP addresses in packets, probably is clearly metadata, according to Smith. You know what they said, probably and clearly in the same sentence. A lot of other information is much harder to classify as either content or as metadata. It seems to occupy some gray area in between. It varies depending on decisions made by parties you don't know exist and could be changed arbitrarily without you knowing that a change has taken place. My phone, when received, uh, if right here in this room, I'm on the phone network, if I switch to the Wi-Fi network, what would seem to be metadata and what would seem to be content might change, but that distinction would be very, probably be quite different if we're on my university campus for fairly arcane technical reasons. How can people know what is going on? We conclude that the content-non-content distinction, the third-party doctrine, are not workable rules in the IP-based communication environment. Without addressing the general content of whether or not law enforcement should need a warrant for getting at some of this data, it's quite clear that we need new con a new statutory framework that is rooted in both technology and the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution to govern what law enforcement can and cannot get at with only a mild court order as opposed to a probable cause-based search warrant under the Fourth Amendment. Thank you. I think we have time for a few questions, Julian? We don't. We don't. Okay. So we'll be around. So.